Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 69. Native Americans 9, the Pacific Northwest. Remember that this is a podcast which only exists because of listener support. If you would like to support the show, one of the best ways of doing that is by leaving an iTunes review. It costs nothing and takes only a few moments. Simply go onto iTunes, search for the podcast, and then click on the stars and leave a few words if you want. It really is that easy. Special thanks to our latest pioneers. This week, these are listener Connie and listener Molly Maloney, whose boyfriend Alex has bought her this as a birthday present. So, happy birthday, Molly! Today, we continue our journey southwards through the North American continent. Having looked at the Arctic and the Subarctic, today we'll move towards the Pacific Northwest as we work our way towards where we started this overview, the American Southwest. As is becoming common practice, we'll open with a passage from Alvin Josephy's The Indian Heritage of America to set the scene. Quote, Along the misty, forested shores of the Pacific Northwest, inhabiting a generally narrow coastal area, hemmed between mountains and the sea, and extending from Alaska's Prince William Sound to Northern California, are a number of tribes that once possessed a dramatic and vigorous culture that included wealth-conscious societies, class distinctions, technical specialisations, and exciting, highly skilled art traditions. Commencing in the north, the tribes included the Tlingits, from Prince William Sound to the lower portion of Alaska's Panhandle, Haidas, on Queen Charlotte Island, Chimshians, Bella Coolis, and Quatiuts, on British Columbia's coast, Nootkas, on the west side of Vancouver Island, various coastal Salish towns including Duwamish, Clalams, Loomis, Muckleshoots, Nisqualis, Puyallips, Skagits, Nomhomish, Sknoqualimish, Swimomish, and Tulalips. Around Puget Sound, Macars, Quinouts, Quileuts, Chihalis, Chinooks, Tillamooks, Umpquas, Coos, Tacalamas, and others on the Washington and Oregon coasts, and Quiots, Hoopas, Yoruks, Karuks, and Tolowas in northwestern California. End quote. My apologies, as always, for any botched pronunciation, as I once again wonder why I'm doing this series. While not quite as problematic as the tribes of the Subarctic, it is surprisingly difficult to work out information about the tribes of the Pacific Northwest. These tribes were very advanced, a product of a mild climate with plentiful natural food sources. This meant that they didn't need to spend as much time keeping warm and finding food as other tribes did. It meant they never developed agriculture, as there was simply no need. Likewise, there were a lot of trees, so it was perfectly natural that they would use wooden tools and equipment. 
The issue here for archaeologists is that wood is perishable. They didn't leave much behind in the way of stone tools, and there was no pottery. It makes it quite difficult to work out just what was going on. We can be reasonably confident that people have lived in the region for at least 8,000 years or so, although there is disagreement about where exactly these people came from. Did they migrate south from Alaska along the coast? Were these people from the subarctic who travelled down rivers from inland? Or people from California who migrated north? We have no real answer, but the earliest finds do seem consistent with old Cordillerian culture, so coming from the interior seems quite likely. But aside from that, we have very little for some time. From about 3,000 years ago, we can begin to fill in more pieces of the puzzle. Civilization developed considerably, and a maritime culture developed, creatively called early maritime culture. But, as with all things, there is disagreement about the specifics of how this influence worked. Archaeology is notoriously difficult for understanding this sort of thing, as I've mentioned many times during the Native American series. It's often impossible to tell the difference between a change in people and a change in technology. In the case of the Pacific Northwest, this relates to the Eskimos. There was certainly some connection between Eskimo and Pacific Northwest culture, which coincides with the arrival of Eskimo culture into the Americas. But exactly how this works is up for debate, with there being two main theories on the subject. The more traditional theory is that once Eskimos arrived in the region, their influence spread southwards, eventually reaching and affecting the cultures of the Pacific Northwest. The second theory is that these influences came directly from Eastern Asia to the Pacific Northwest, and then spread northwards into what would then become Eskimo culture. Being no expert on the subject, I'm not even going to hazard a guess out of which of these two theories is more likely. Either way, these maritime cultures developed and engaged with land-hunting cultures, creating one of the most sophisticated Native American cultures by the time they entered the historical record. The Pacific Northwest cultures were very different from those we've dealt with in the Arctic and the Subarctic. They were not thinly dispersed into small groups. Instead, they had developed a society which was obsessed with status. This was displayed through material wealth such as blankets, fine art, canoes, slaves, and later, large sheets of copper. Potlatches were very important. These were the giving away feasts we mentioned in the previous episode. They would usually celebrate an important event, such as a marriage, and were a great opportunity to gain status within the society, or to undo a previous humiliation. Giving away feast is a useful translation, but it doesn't capture the exact essence of it. It gives too much emphasis to the generosity of the act, rather than on the extravagance of, look how rich I am, it's possible for me to not have all this wealth and be okay. This is the key point. It's about the giver no longer having it, than somebody else having it. So, blankets could certainly be given away, 
but it could be taken further. Slaves could be killed, or the person might even burn down their own house. Potlatches worked in cycles. When someone was hosting one, it was customary to insult your rivals, who would then be dishonoured, and have to give just as glorious potlatches of their own. This makes very little sense to modern ears, which are unlikely to be impressed by someone burning down their own house. Indeed, in the modern world, there is very little point to burning down your house. Unless, of course, it's part of an insurance scam. Although, I might just be thinking that because of how many times Mo the bartender has tried it on The Simpsons, rather than it being a thing that actually happens. It'll be hell being locked away from you, but I guess I gotta take my medicine. Unless... Unless I send a letter to the police clearing Homer. Yeah? Then we go to the graveyard and steal two corpses. Oh my god. We, we, we switch clothes with them and leave them in the bar. Then we pour some brandy around, like so. Yeah, would you hand me my keys? Uh, yeah, here you go. Then we light a match, and woof, we start a new life in Hawaii. Goodbye, Mo. Where you going, baby? You going to find the corpses? Yes, Mo, I'm going to find corpses. Uh, well, you want me to come with? Renee? Dearest? Ah, uh, she ain't coming back. Ah, ah, ah. Uh-oh. Although, my jokes should be dismissed as Western incomprehension. I'm not going to concede that I understand why burning down your house could possibly be a good idea, but some of the wealth destroyed was surplus. It wasn't going to be used for anything. Trade was very limited, so it couldn't be exchanged for other items. This was less true in the poorer south going into California, where trade networks did extend into the interior, but we'll save those discussions for another region. And as for the giving things away, it was likely that in two, these people would also host potlatches of their own. So the wealth was being distributed in a circle, and it would eventually work its way back, once everybody had shared it. Warfare was common between the various tribes, as they wore wooden helmets and fought with clubs, daggers, spears, bows and arrows. They would travel by water, as was common in the Pacific Northwest, in large canoes, and the primary aim was to capture slaves. Religious life was rich and vibrant. Theirs was a world of spirits which took the form of animals. Common ones were the eagle, the beaver, the raven, the bear, and the whale. Shamans would interact with these spirits on behalf of the tribe to secure good fortune. The tribes of this region had a distinctive art style that is most recognisable, and the arrival of the Europeans only enhanced this. Iron tools were far more useful, and this had a dramatic effect in the middle of the 19th century. Large trees were cut down and carved into beautiful designs, bearing crests and histories of the men who built them. I am of course talking of totem poles. Totem poles are one of the principal visual symbols of the Native Americans, but, like much of their culture, it has been appropriated and wildly distorted. 
For instance, if you think of Native Americans, totem poles will be one of the first things you think of. But they were restricted to this area of the Pacific Northwest coast. They were only used by these tribes. Not all of them. They also had no religious significance whatsoever. Another common misunderstanding. Totem poles were status symbols, and they were placed outside houses from the mid-1800s onwards, as a way of displaying influence. Native American history is tragic, and the history of the totem pole is a great example of this. After contact with the Europeans, there was great potential, and Native American culture probably reached its zenith here, but it all too quickly entered a decline. Conflicts with traders and disease decimated the population, and the brilliance of the artwork waned. The great old totems slowly rotted in the moist atmosphere of the Pacific Northwest. There are still some Indian villages with carvers producing totems, but these are not what they once were. These are pale imitations created for tourists or sold to non-Indian purchasers, as part of a wider pattern of cultural appropriation. This is where we'll bring things to a close for this week's episode. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, remember that you can find us online. The website is thehistoryofpodcast.com, and you can go there to sign up for membership. We're on social media, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. You can send me an email, if you so wish, the address is thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time when we swap sides of the continent to talk about the Northeast Woodlands. Thanks for listening. <laughs>